his manic pixie dream boy. He totally is. Hello, greetings, good day, and welcome to The Feminist Present, season three, our historic third season. I am your co-host, Laura Good. I'm Adrian Dobb. <laughs> he's, he's here. Um, we're bringing you today the historic de-retrospective part two, our deep dive on gender and sexuality in Leonardo DiCaprio's career between 1993 and 1998, otherwise known as Adrian kindly consents to Laura's obsessions of 25 years ago. So Adrian, for anybody who needs to be persuaded to listen to part one before they get to part two right here, what did we cover in part one of this retrospective? So we covered quite a lot of ground. Yes. And I think this one is going to be a little bit more concentrated. We started with This Boy's Life, a film made from a memoir by, in fact, a former Stanford colleague, Tobias Wolf, starring Leo and Robert De Niro and Ellen Barkin. Then we went to What's Eating Gilbert Grape, released in 1993. Still have not answered that crucial question, but we did watch the movie. Yeah. If you want to find out what is indeed eating Gilbert Grape, do not listen to this podcast. We cannot tell you. We cannot tell you. <laughs> Please stop asking us. It's getting embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> then we talked briefly about The Quick and the Dead, a Sam Raimi kind of spaghetti western from 1994. And then we ended with a twofer of probably the biggest bummer of Leo's mid-90s career, The Basketball Diaries. And then the big kind of curio of that period of his life, namely the film Don's Plum, which Leo and Tobey Maguire, who both star in it, sued to have suppressed for reasons that mm -hmm. there are legion and you can tune in for that, but that I still do not fully comprehend. Like, I thought it was going to be like explicit sex or something like that, but it, it totally was not. The TLDR is basically Leo's star was rising. Leo had a future as a romantic lead in movies to protect. Tobey Maguire's star was rising more slowly. He was super jealous of Leo's rising star. And I think what I read b between the lines of the court documents is that Tobey Maguire especially knew this movie was going to make him look bad and convince Leo to use his clout to help him block it. But I think that they both had incentives to mm. block it and that takes us to Romeo and Juliet, which is very crucially Leonardo DiCaprio's first heterosexual romantic lead. I think it's important to note on this particular podcast that he had had a romantic plot in a very gay movie called Total Eclipse, which is about Arthur Rimbaud. And uh, this movie cannot be found anywhere now. I don't think it's been like actively suppressed. I, well, I don't know if it's been actively suppressed or if it's just sort of dropped off the radar, but we tried to dig it up to watch it for this discussion and neither one of us could find it anywhere. So anyway, Romeo and Juliet brings us to Leo's first cataclysmic hetero on-screen romance, which... um impacted me greatly in the mid-90s. Huh. <laughs> did you see this movie when it came out? I believe I did, yes. Yeah. It was a big one in teen girl America. I mean, like we talked about last week, many of us who were adolescents during this period were very aware already of The Basketball Diaries, which, you know, it's a bummer, but like it's a bummer with just like a frisson of sex around the middle. So like that was enough for perhaps a desperate teenage girl once upon a time. But Romeo and Juliet really leans full tilt into tragic love story. And I want to hear what you were thinking about on this rewatch. But one of the things that I was thinking about on this rewatch 
in the context of the sort of career arc that we've been discussing, mm. it's like, this is the perfect film for him to do next. Like, it makes so much sense to me in de retrospect that this fits so neatly into his career arc because it has all of the elements that he's always defined as being high priority to him, right? It has grit, it has substance, it has chops, it has a fantastic cast of like supporting and co-starring actors. Like it has all of the things that we've seen in his previous work, but then it layers on top of that a hot, hot romantic story with Claire Danes, who honestly should receive like some sort of humanitarian award for the work she did in the 90s, giving bookish emotional girls some sort of emotional roadmap but like man her path from like my so-called life through little women to romeo and juliet also very cataclysmic we could do a claire danes retrospective just as easily although it would be like 90 percent homeland or something um <laughs> which runs into its own white feminist problems very quickly oh yeah yeah but like how was this rewatch for you like what was it like watching this film now i've always had a conflicted relationship Conflict. to this film. i think that there are parts of it that really i th think are impressive and fun and energizing but i cannot get away from the fact you know that joke on 30 rock it's kind of a cutaway joke where steve buscemi is going undercover as a high school teacher and saying boy shakespeare and rap have nothing in common or do they? And I feel like that is, <laughs> this movie has that for me and it's yes, hard for yes. me to get away from it. I also think that the acting that I remember being actually fairly good, I breathed a sigh of relief when Leo finally shows up on screen because he is fantastic. Yes, and yes. I mean, so is Claire Danes, but he shows up before her. Yes. There is a lot of not great shouting, to quote another yes, old yes. joke, but like these are Nicolas Cage roles and that all the dialogue is either whispered or shouted. Very much. And so I was like, oh, fuck, is that Jamie Kennedy? I was like, this is, that's grim. Like, I don't know. I was just looking up his name. Jamie Kennedy does not acquit himself very well in Shakespeare. I agree. I mean, everything you're saying, interestingly enough, because you're older than I am, very much kind of mirrors what Janet Maslin said in her original New York Times review ah. of the film. Her her review was like decidedly... Me and Janet are like this, yeah. I know, I'm pointing that out. She like is very much like, eh, parts of this worked for me, very much parts of it, not so much. But one thing that she notes that I also really agreed with on this rewatch is how much the grasp of Shakespeare varies yeah. among the supporting cast. I agree with you. DiCaprio and Danes are fantastic. And I think there are some supporting players who are fantastic. Oh, yeah. But uh, old Kennedy playing, I don't remember his character's name, not one of them. It's hard to watch. I mean, the other thing is, of course, that, and I don't know if it's entirely the cast's fault, right? Like, it is a Baz Luhrmann film, so, like, it is yes. over produced within an inch of its life and some of these people clearly like some of the, the supporting players probably have done Shakespeare before but like like this is a fuck ton going on around them right there's like, a fuck ton going on it's a maximalist film there's just so much happening around them that you know on the one hand the film seems to insist that it has a lot of great deal of reverence for Shakespeare's words right but it also kind of it keeps remixing I haven't read or seen Romeo and Juliet performed for quite a while but like I do believe that there are scenes where they change the order of lines. There are. Yes, I remember that. Yes. They remix, but they don't rewrite, I think is the rule that they lay out. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I do think that that sometimes like leaves them stranded, right? That like there's a dynamism to the scene that gets actually destroyed because of what Lurman is trying to do. What I think has aged incredibly well is the production design. Oh I mean, my God. Catherine Martin just... is such a genius. I know she was nominated for an Academy Award for her design here. I can't remember. 
remember if she won. I'll tell you in a second. But yes, I agree. It's incredible. I mean, there's an interesting thing going on there, which I'd never caught. So for those of you who haven't seen this movie, which I guess is possible by now, a lot of people of <laughs> Laura and my generation were shown this in high school to like make us finally like Shakespeare. Speak I'm for guessing... yourself. I took it on all of my own volition, but you go ahead. Oh dear, oh dear. Being shown this as if it were a task, a chore, my God. But one of the things that I had not caught when I first saw it at, you know, whatever, age 15 or something like that, is to give a brief synopsis, well, not of the story itself, but what makes this film distinctive, it moves the action from fair verona to verona beach which is essentially a it's supposed to be a decrepit california beachside community it's venice beach i mean it's very discernible it's supposed to be venice beach but at the same time right like there are high rises a mix of venice beach and long beach i would think and Mm -hmm. the montagues and the capulets are recast as two warring gangs really with Ryan Dennehy and Paul Servino as mm-hmm, the two mm-hmm. patriarchs both coming out of various crime shows as well sort of giving it the nice kind of 90s crime I like that bit of casting I like the two patriarchs performances oh, totally. yeah but the thing that I had not caught before that strikes me now it's not all of this was filmed in the United States at all isn't it is that true that looked to me like Mexico City in parts. Oh, I believe you're right. Yes. There's an interesting intertext here. There's an unacknowledged kind of question around, like on the one hand, they're Americanizing it, but they're actually moving it sort of out of the United States, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of interesting. Yes, parts of it were... Is, am, I right, am I right about that? You are right. I'm reading from the internet. Well, some parts of the film were shot in Miami. Most of the film was shot in Mexico City and Boca del Rio, Veracruz. So yes, there was a significant amount of production that took place uh-huh. in Mexico. Yes. So, and also following up on a previous question, Catherine Martin was nominated for an Academy Award, but did not win for the production design here. Yeah. So I think that the way the movie deals with strife, with violence, right, is on the one hand, very much beholden to a kind of 80s Reaganite imagination of gangland violence. But at the same time, the fact that the scenes where choppers sort of capture how, you know, civil blood makes civil hands unclean, are not filmed in the United States. I I think that there's an interesting, unacknowledged racial subtext here too. I wonder if the filmmakers were aware of it. That's interesting because it seems both purposeful and not to me. Like on one level, the movie is resisting planting the Montagues and Capulets in like different ethnic or racial camps in the manner of West Side Story, right? It's not making that choice. But it does have a notably diverse cast and a diversity of settings as well that like kind of adds to that texture. As I was doing some research, I found a contemporary review of the film that I really liked by... Roxana Haddadi for RogerEbert.com. And she kind of gets into what she makes of the casting here. And she says, Perinu and Leguizamo, retrospectively, she's talking about Harold Perinu and John Leguizamo as Mercutio and Tybalt, are hurricanes of charisma every time they appear on screen. As Black and Latin American men, the actors bring complexity and depth to Lerman's depiction of Verona Beach, and their presence complicates our traditional ideas of tribalism. As the conversation about diversity, inclusion, and representation in film has taken on a more impassioned tone in recent years, Perno and I don't know if it's Perno or Perno, excuse my pronunciation, and Leguizamo demonstrate the value added of such equity. Frankly, they're phenomenal. They're highly tuned performances giving Romeo and Juliet the thrill and danger needed to make its calamities even more impactful. 
What do you think of that? How do you how do you reckon with that contention? Yeah, I think it's a movie that in many ways has aged extremely well, and that's one of them. Mm-hmm. I, I have to say that I didn't find Leguizamo's performance that good, but Perrineau is terrific, I thought. Perrineau is probably, I think, the highlight of the film. Leguizamo... I mean, Leguizamo is a charismatic guy, but he has one expression in this he's film. He's so watchable, yeah. He has one expression in this film. And I mean, he's much yeah. better in other 90s movies. I'm such a fan of Leguizamo. I have trouble being objective here, but I hear what you're saying. I mean, for me, it's hard to disentangle this movie from everything that came after it for Buzz Luhrmann, right? Like, yeah. he has a way of working with really great actors and they look kind of bewildered by all the madness around them. I sometimes feel a little bad for the actors. And there is a kind of element here too of, on the one hand, I think it's absolutely wonderful that the cast is so diverse and that it avoids, as the review that you quoted says, it avoids kind of making this into a tribalistic mm-hmm, mm-hmm. fable. At the same time, it is a little clueless in the way it deals with some of these things in the way that the 90s kind of just were, right? The fact that Mexicanness comes to stand in for violence, the way, yes. you know, yes. the way that Perry No is put in drag, like within like 10 minutes of showing up on screen, right? Like, Definitely, we're going to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, ah, yeah. You know, if anyone hasn't checked it out, they should. I think it's not going to detract from your viewing pleasure. But I think while on the one hand, this was absolutely path breaking or, mm-hmm. or forward looking, there are elements here that maybe the review is overstating it slightly. I think that there's that well, there are parts of this that are, you know, you can tell that this is a, a white Aussie director um, making this in Hollywood in the 90s. Totally. Yeah, I, th- I think I mostly agree with your contention that like the directorial hand is sort of uneven here in a way that when you have an actor like Perrineau, who is willing to take a lot of risks and make a lot of choices and still be comfortable with this complex language gives a very beautiful performance. But like maybe an actor like Kennedy doesn't acquit himself as well because he doesn't yeah. have as much guidance and he doesn't have as much grounding going into the role to make those strong choices. Yeah. Yeah. I also want to call out Vondi Curtis Hall as Captain Prince. I thought acquitted himself really beautifully with the Shakespearean language. Like he... He was an actor that I was watching. I was like, you've done Shakespeare before. Like, this sounds very natural in your mouth. I don't know that for a fact, but his performance convinced me of that. How did you feel like Paul Rudd did? Uh, I mean, it's hard He's to... He's so pretty. It's hard to disentangle Paul Ruddness from the... The Paul Rudd of it all. The Dave Paris, the Dave Paris role. Yes, Dave. Dave uh, Paris. Dave. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 it's cute, but it's like, it's still Paul Rudd. I mean, and the unnerving fact that he looks exactly the same today. Totally. I couldn't get past that. No, I I do think that it's really the perfect vehicle for Danes and for DiCaprio because every time they're on screen, the movie sings and you kind of don't want them to ever leave. And then you're like, ugh, you know, there's Paul Rudd again. (laughs) It almost feels like you're like, can we move the camera back onto Leo? Maybe it doesn't matter if he's just like you know, waiting outside a swimming pool. Like, oh I am gosh. Yeah. I'm fine, you know? Water. Water in this film is something we could write an undergraduate paper on. We're talking a lot about the supporting characters before we get to Romeo and Juliet. And just to finish the supporting character discussion, I want to read another passage from that Roxana Haddadi article about Mercutio and see what you think of it. Haddadi writes... Romeo and Juliet thrives on contradictions, employing them in the film's arsenal of narrative anachronistic mashups. And then she gives an example. How the silver-tongued, inevitably cutting, delightfully roguish Mercutio, so dismissive of best friend Romeo's mooning over his first crush Rosalind, 
Rosaline, might have a very good reason for his irritation. He might be in love with Romeo himself. And right. as Perrineau plays him, note that prick love for pricking, line delivery, Mercutio adds enough queer subtext to the film to incorporate another dimension of rage and grief to Romeo's retributive murder of Tybalt. Right. So how does that potential queer reading sit with you? Oh, I mean, I think that's there. Yeah. They have a kind of beach bum homoeroticism. Yes. Very, like, kind of fratty homoeroticism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The only thing that keeps keeps it subtextual is the fact that most of them are related to each other. But yeah, I think that that's absolutely accurate. And Romeo is not not the straightest. I mean, I guess a lot of Shakespeare heroes are like this, aren't they? But like, well, this is where we return back to sort of where this discussion originated, right? Is like, he's playing ostensibly, sorry, I interrupted you, but like, he's playing ostensibly a straight romantic lead. But Leonardo DiCaprio is a very specific kind of male romantic lead, right? Especially Shakespeare's tragic heroes often are not hyper-masculine. There's a kind of queer quality to a lot of them, right? I mean, like, or queer, I should say, not in the sense that, like, they code as gay, but rather that they're too wrapped up in themselves, too melancholy, too read as strictly heterosexual, right? They, They can't get the romantic plot going because they're too hung up on something. This is why... I think that DiCaprio is kind of perfect for that. I mean, I, I haven't rewatched the Mel Gibson Hamlet, but that would be kind of the opposite of that, right? Like another famous kind of ditherer. And then having Mad Max himself uh, play, play this guy, I, I don't know. Well, that's, yeah, that's one kind of Hamlet. And as you're talking, I'm also reminded of Ethan Hawke's Hamlet, which is right. much closer to DiCaprio's sort of stripe of like undergrad philosophy major brooding, right? Like, right. I mean, the way DiCaprio smokes in this film is. Yeah. It's like it's it's a I mean if you just quit please don't watch this movie it makes smoking look so good yes uh, he, he's just yeah lots of uh seeds planted in my adolescent brain there yes I'm as you're talking one of the things that my research surfaced was a comment that none other than Senator John McCain once made of Leo which was Leonardo DiCaprio is an androgynous wimp <laughs> And I'm thinking, I was thinking during my research too about like, there were some gay rumors that were dogging DiCaprio during this time that I remember pretty distinctly. And a lot of them focused on Tobey Maguire. And I'm not making any particular assertions. Like I'm not saying that I think Leo is a closet case, but I am saying that I think in the milieu of the 90s, he had a reputation to protect, right? Like he had to do a very kind of straight coded film But I just, I guess what I'm also saying is I don't know how successfully the film pulls off straightness because of his kind of androgyny, you know, and and Claire Danes has a little bit of androgyny too, you know, like I think that there is a possible, I think you would have to force that kind of queer reading, but I do think it's there. And that was sort of the origin point for this discussion for me was like watching that like iconic shot of Leo on Verona Beach in the construction of the film in this sort of like golden hour sunset smoking the sexiest cigarette of all time. He's so sexy, but definitely not in a way that radiates like Mark Wahlberg's brand of 90s maleness, right? right? So like, I think there is kind of like a shifting norm here as to like what kind of man is sexy, right? And that continues to be really interesting to me. Well, I mean, Johnny Depp had gotten there before him. We talked about that last time. Sure. Keith Richards and David Bowie before him, you know, Mick Jagger, like certainly this is not the first iteration of that kind of androgyny we've ever seen, but it is a mainstreaming of that androgyny that I think is a little newer. Maybe. I mean, it's interesting, right? The movie manages to really sideline heterosexuality pretty consistently for a movie that's like one of the most famous heterosexual love stories in the Western canon. 
Um, yes. But at the same time, part of that is also the energy between Danes and DiCaprio, right? Like, Yeah, their chemistry is incredible. The first time they meet, right? Like they both sort of are shot in a way that they're mostly grimacing at their own mirrored reflection. Like there is a kind of, they're both these, um, they both do this kind of self-involved teen thing just well enough for it to not register that they're kind of into each other not into themselves yes so i mean that's another kind of queerness that we can really introduce the queerness of adolescence it's not really quite it's not same-sex attraction or anything like that or or but there is a kind of narcissism too exactly there's a kind or just just a falling short of the heterosexual quote-unquote norm although one thing i think i remember hearing somewhere you have to tell me whether this is true or not wasn't Natalie Portman supposed to be cast in this role at I was some point? just about to talk about that. Yes, totally she was. I think it got far enough that she was actually offered the role, but she, I looked this up, she's two years younger than Claire Danes. Right. So at the time that this was shooting, Natalie Portman was 15 and they were like, I think there's an actually, actually a quote of Natalie Portman being like, the casting directors thought it looked like Leo was molesting me. I mean, this is where DiCaprio's age kind of comes back, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Like he'd been doing these aged down roles for much of the 90s as we discussed yes but as he starts being a romantic lead obviously that like that becomes a bit of a mm-hmm. problem mm-hmm. right he you know he, he can't be matched with actresses that are actually the age that he pretends to be yeah in these roles because it, it just looks fucking creepy totally that's an interesting point i like that a lot yeah and i'm also thinking about how he and claire danes at this moment are at very similar career hinges you know like natalie portman also had a career as a child star but not on tv and uh, Claire Danes had really come to cult prominence through My So-Called Life yeah. and uh, famously left after one season and refused to do any more. So I just think that she and Leo are at kind of a similar kind of critical juncture. And it's interesting because you could call Romeo and Juliet another kind of family film. You know, they are both still in teen characters in a family film, but it's just a very different kind of teen character in family film that I think was really crucial for both of their careers at that moment. They're undone by the sins of their elders, right? Yeah. Which is, you know, I'm guessing why directors have often cast fairly age-appropriate for, right? It's the famous uh, Franco Zeffirelli film. Well, Zeffirelli, I think, was really the first to actually cast Uh teenagers. I think that that was a direct response to how many stage productions he had seen. I remember a quote about, like, wrinkled Romeos and Fat Juliets were, like, what he Uh was tired of. And so that was why he cast actual teenagers, which is what Baz Luhrmann sort of, unlike Claire Danes, was an actual teenager. Leo was 21. Right. But it's important, right? Because these kids are supposed to be undone by by decisions that the previous generation has made and and sort of can't own up to. It's important that there be a kind of a fresh-facedness to them. Absolutely, in in terms of the generational implications or resonances of those decisions, and also because like any grown-up who has seen any or read any version of this story will tell you, like, these are such teenage characters. They literally taught they have two conversations before they get married. They have one conversation before they decide to get married, you know, <laughs> like as you say in the Lerman staging of how they meet, 
they're essentially falling into their own reflections as they meet through this aquarium. So like, it's an incredibly like teenage solipsism kind of love story. So it it would make no sense in terms of like the narrative to put 40 year old actors in there. So yes, I agree with the necessity of needing really fresh faces with really sparkling chemistry to sell that story. And it's funny, I, I don't feel like I have anything much more complex to say about DiCaprio and Dane's performances other than they're really good. You know, like they both handle the Shakespeare really well. They interplay with each other really well. It's it's great for well, how young they are. Maybe we should jump ahead and contrast that with DiCaprio and Winslet in Titanic because I was going to say I feel us approaching what you showed up to this discussion to talk about, which is how much you love James Cameron. No, no, no. Because I'm just thinking like <laughs> there is a kind of it's it's funny how much sort of a lot happens. So much happened. Yeah, they're very similar love stories. The love stories in Romeo and Juliet and Titanic. Yeah. Yeah, but because he prevents her from jumping off the boat, basically, yeah. because... He saves her in every way a person can that's be right. saved. Old lady from Titanic. Yes. Who's the name? I forget. But uh, well, yes. it's old Rose. Yeah, she's old. She's also Rose. Right? That's the whole Old point. Rose. Gloria something. I can't remember. Yeah, we'll get there. The one with the most erotic moment of my life. Uh, that, li- <laughs> that line is, is phenomenal. I'm sorry. Oh, that line. Sorry, I thought you were saying it was the most <laughs> no, it's erotic not. moment. It's a line from her. Yeah. <laughs> yes, no, I know um, what you mean. But there's something aged up about these two characters, right? About Jack and Rose versus Romeo and Juliet? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Jack's been around the bend a little bit. They're a little more like world weary. They're both, at least she's at a crisis point and he kind of is too, right? He's this mm-hmm. kind of desperate drifter. It's interesting like how he does these two romantic roles that are clearly meant to be of the same vintage, but actually end up, I think, telling a very different story. Mm-hmm. The narcissism in mm-hmm. Romeo and Juliet is not there in Titanic, for instance. Like, nor is the irony of Baz Luhrmann, right? Luhrmann kind of makes a little bit of fun of, of his characters. Right, right. Whereas uh, Cameron is all in for them. He's, he, he, he loves these two. Who is he ever? Man, is he... You know, it's interesting. I agree with your point that Jack and Rose come off as like a little world wearier, a little more jaded, a little bit more experienced. I don't think that Jack's age is specified in the film. Yeah. I know that Rose's is specified as 17. Oh which my God. Isn't Juliet's, isn't Juliet's supposed to be 16? Wait, I'm sorry, she is? She's supposed to be 17. Yeah. They, they say that at some point. Yeah, they definitely establish that because they have to establish how she's still alive, right? And like, so she has to be oh, young. Of course, so I can do the math. Of course, yeah. I never thought about that. For the math. In my mind, she she's of marriageable age. I stand corrected then. I mean, like... But I agree with you that Rose DeWitt Decatur is, you know, jaded to the point of suicidal, is 17 and already weary of the ways of her, like, upper crust life. So the confusion in your reading makes a ton of yeah. sense. She has the kind of sense of a society debutante yes. who is approaching her sell-by date. Yes. To put it bluntly, yes. right? Like, I mean, that, I mean, Billy Zane would not be a first choice no matter what, right? Totally. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, that man doesn't know art. Well, and the story tells us that her family has kind of fallen from favor and they have right. just this name left and no actual money. I was just looking up how old she was. She's just a year younger than Leo. So I think he was 22 and she was 21 when they were shooting this. Yeah, okay, so... 
it would be silly to recap the plot of Titanic. I don't think we need to do that. Spoiler alert, the iceberg <laughs> did it. <laughs> but like one thing that I was, I want to talk about the structure of the movie. Mm-hmm. Because one thing I was really, that really struck me on this rewatch was, and of course this is like how Hollywood movies work. This isn't like a stunning revelation. But knowing the film as well as I do, I was really struck watching it this time at how the first hour and 40 minutes of the film before they hit the iceberg is completely consumed with just setting up all the meat for the whip of just introducing us and investing us in every single person who's going to die. Right. And like, I just noticed in the sort of tracking shot where Leo's getting on the boat, every single person who they spotlight as he passes them is going to die, you know, which brings me to another structural point that like, loath as I am to give James Cameron like a ton of writing credit, I do think there is something very effective about the avatars that he creates in Jack and Rose and the way he uses them to cover as much sort of square footage of the ship as possible. Like Rose. Yeah, they're tour guides, aren't they? Yes, there are tour guides. Rose is our emissary into the upper decks, the upper crust life. Jack is our emissary into the like below deck, you know, steerage life. And like they're in different class positions and the movie cannot stop talking about this. It's not subtle, right? No. So I thought that that character construction was very effective in giving us like a wide berth around the ship. And I actually thought that the character building was really actually very effective in like, how else do you get anybody to care about a thousand people dying on the boat? You have to put faces on some of those people and some of them have to be children and some of them have to have families and it has to have stakes, right? So all of that really stuck out to me on this rewatch. And the other thing that stuck out to me on this rewatch was... So I was one of the teenage girls who saw this like four times in the theater, you know, with like snot dripping down my face as I like sobbed hysterically. I have seen at least big chunks of this film in the intervening years, but it's been very much in like settings of like sitting around making fun of it with friends. And when I sat down and earnestly watched the film tip to tail this time, I was emotionally destroyed by it for the rest of the day. Oh, wow. And I did not expect that at all. And it wasn't just like, you know, my hormones being liquid at Leonardo DiCaprio again, though they are. It was that, like, I think as best I could process it, watching three hours and 14 minutes of mass death inflected by, like, shocking class divisions just, like, hit a little different this year yeah (laughs) somehow somehow That's my recap of The Boat and the rewatch. How did yours go? So I saw it in theaters at least twice, I think, when it first came out as well. Uh, and, oh, and for similar, the plot thickens. For sem- similar Leo-related reasons, obviously, but also for like sure. you know a really immersive experience, I remember. A yeah. really kind of engrossing movie. The way I've put it together for myself is that part of what makes the movie effective, right? It, it dilly-dallies a lot, right? There's the Who famous Simpsons it? joke about like, you know, when are we going to get to the fireworks factory? Yes. This movie takes its fucking time getting sure to the fireworks factory. An hour factory. and 40 minutes before the ship hits the iceberg. Yeah. Yes. 
But I realized in rewatching it that this is a strategy that Cameron had employed once before very effectively, which is in Aliens. Oh. Have you recently rewatched that? It's another kind of feminist masterpiece, I have right? not because I've had children and it's too terrifying as an analog to pregnancy. Oh, it is definitely. I mean, so there are two cuts that exist of this. The director's cut mucks this up a little bit, but the theatrical cut of it that was released, it's a bunch of roughneck grunts kind of rummaging around a facility while Sigourney Weaver's like, you're all gonna die, please stop doing this. Stanford alum, Sigourney Weaver. And they're like, whatever, (laughs) we're kick-ass Marines, don't worry about it. You know, toots. And then like an hour and a half in, all shit breaks loose and it never stops breaking loose. And I think that Cameron's aesthetics is kind of a form of hostage taking. And I think that's what happens here. Yes, that's a very good way to describe it. Yes. It kind of lures you in and you're like, ugh, I get it, I get it, I get it. But then... The Rube Goldberg device is set up in such a way that it will not let up for the next hour and a half. And you're like... By the time you realize you're in the trap, it's way too late. Yeah. I mean, Aliens, though it's terrific, is not emotionally all that involving, right? You're like, you you understand these people are going to die and whatever. That's funny, you know? It's it's different when it's like, you know, a poor Irish immigrant with her two children, right? And you're like, you know... exactly. He applies the logic of a horror film, I think, uh, to Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, a very mm -hmm. human story. And and I think that that's part of why, like, you just feel pummeled by the end of it. That's a great analysis. I think the horror film analog is right on. And as you say it that way, I'm realizing that in a way, Titanic is actually his most realistic film. You know, Mm. like, there's really no speculative element to it the way there is to Terminator or Alien or any of that. The Abyss? Yeah, I'm also realizing that Titanic is the only James Cameron film I have ever seen in its entirety. I I did not, I have not seen the entirety of any of the Alien series, any of the Terminator series. I refused to see Avatar because that's the kind of asshole I am. I mean, fair enough. But even that, part of your brain is like, this is incredibly loopy and dumb. But the other half is like, he he knows how to like, as you say, like the trap is sprung and you're like, I guess I'm, I guess I'm here now and I might as well get involved, right? Like it. um... Absolutely. Yeah. No. And I, I was deep in the trap with Titanic on this rewatch. I was all, my head was in the gullet. That then makes it interesting where, where I felt in rewatching Romeo and Juliet, I was like, wow, this is a movie that is a terrific art direction, kind of hyperactive and in Mm -hmm. parts, frankly, slightly incompetent direction by Baz Luhrmann. Like, I think the Mm -hmm. action scenes are Mm -hmm. terrible uh, in Romeo and Juliet. Hmm. Saved by just the pure magnetism of Leo, just like, he's like, let me just light the cigarette. And everybody's like, okay, the movie's saved. Oh, this is great. Yes, I'm here for this. Like, We can spend 15 minutes on this. Yeah, please don't put the cigarette out, Leo. (laughs) Whereas he does feel a little bit more lost on the Titanic, I feel like, right? He is a function in, like, there's a guy behind the camera who is just setting up this perfect thrill ride and he's not quite taking control of it compared to, let's say, Sigourney Weaver in Aliens, where it's just like, it's her movie. She owns it, right? Like, even when she's just like, maybe don't go in there. And everybody's like, shut up, Ripley. You know, like, yeah. her face is like, I know exactly when the running and the shouting and the firing of guns is going to start, right? And he doesn't have that here. He, I feel like right. he's a little bit at the mercy of, of just the sheer machine around him. A literal machine, right? Well, he... 
he has to be a tragic figure, you know? Like, I think that that yeah. is his function in the film. Like, he is at the top of the hierarchy of the steerage class in the logic of the film. He is at the top of the hierarchy of the steerage class. In other words, he is the poorest character right. that we are the most invested in, right? So in order to achieve the movie's goal of realism, of depicting who really paid the price of the Titanic's failure, he right, has right. to be at the top of that list right like just in terms of the structure and logic of the film i feel of two ways about this on one level he isn't really our guide through this because it's right. so faded that he's not going to survive and because cameron's writing just gives him so little character yeah. to work with there's like nothing that can be done about it but on the other hand i was watching it on this time around and i was like how is Leo being so, like, how is Jack being so bossy? Like, how does he constantly know which hallway to yeah. go down and which, like, door they should try? And, like, he does spend a lot of time being like, come on, Rose, this way. And I'm like, well, how the fuck do you know? You know, is it just that this character has more confidence? There's the axe down the hall. You're like... How did he know this? Exactly. And if you go through with a fine tooth comb, you can see how deliberately Cameron has plotted and established all of those elements right. for like Leo to remember later. But it was kind of like, Jack, you have a lot of authority in this kind of disaster situation. And I don't know where you earned it. <laughs> but is that not the way in which he saves Rose in all the ways that a person can be saved? He gives her the unearned confidence of a white guy. Oh, that's so beautiful. That's his bequeath to her. Yes. <laughs> Clearly she has blundered into a... I mean, there's no way Rose became an expert in all these oh things. Oh my god, She just yes. did them and was like, fuck it, I'm a pilot this now. This movie is basically like, dirty dancing on a boat. It really is. It's it's like that kind of sexual yeah, initiation yeah. story. Can I tell you what obsessed me to the most inappropriate degree in this rewatch? So there's like one thing that Romeo and Juliet and Titanic have in common, that there is exactly one sex scene and everybody you care about dies, right? Like they're the same construction right. of film in that way. And in the, sex, in the sex scene in Titanic, which is more explicit than the sex scene in Romeo and Juliet, which is a detail that was very significant to me when I was 14 years old. I was watching this and I'm like, okay, there's no intimation of birth control of any kind, right? And it's not implied in the narrative of the framing device of old Rose that she like had Jack's baby. So I'm literally sitting there. I'm like, did Jack pull out? Like, I have to know. <laughs> whatever this this I mean, couldn't be I more tangential but i couldn't stop thinking about it no i don't i don't think it is i mean i do think it it gets to the question of saving yes right? yeah like because right there is a way in which we meet rose's daughter and granddaughter we meet her granddaughter granddaughter and there's a version of the film of course where the big reveal is not that she's held on to the priceless diamond all this time but where the big reveal is that that granddaughter is jack's granddaughter Right. Oh, it, that is in the cut version? Okay. No, no, no. No, I'm saying that it isn't, they, they don't do that. Right. Okay. Right? I see. But you can imagine like in terms of cheap third act reveals, yes. that would be one. I see. Right? You're positing that as a hypothesis, not an actual. Yes. And I think that it's really to the film's credit that it doesn't go that route. and says, yes. no, the thing he impressed on her was not a fucking kid. It was right. like stand up to stupid bullies and expectations. And if people ask you whether you're a pilot, it's like, sure, whatever. Yeah, why <laughs> yeah, not? Just, just blunder into well, it. Well, the final sweep of the film through her photographs, which again are cannily established just as she's entering the boat. Like Old Rose has that line of like, I always love to have my pictures with me when I travel. And then we see all those pictures at the end and it's like Rose being a pilot, Rose riding a horse, Rose like living freedom and liberty. 
and that's why the the pullout question obsessed me so is like none of that setup would have been possible had she been a single mother you know in 1912 so it is actually essential to the story that that not be jack's granddaughter i agree with you that's to the film's credit but i was just like what kind of trick did they invent in 1912 that like (laughs) What I was thinking about, this is so gross, but like there's the big reveal right after Jack and Rose get out of the sex car where like the guys who are chasing them with flashlights like think they found them and they like victoriously open the door of the sex car. And I was just like, shouldn't there be a stain on that couch? Like this is a very clean, recently vacated sex location. Anyway, that is disgusting. It's a PG-13 movie. It's a PG-13 movie. They couldn't get into those realities. I think, I think... There's a director's cut where there's like, well, we put more. It's really the same movie, but we put more <laughs> spooge in. <laughs> I will also note that I did appreciate how the film established Rose's enthusiastic consent for that sexual encounter with the iconic line, put your hands on me, Jack. <laughs> Which uh, I cannot picture saying to anybody in any context. Like, no. Can we please talk about James Cameron's dialogue? Like, what we, are I think your favorites? <laughs> what, are, what are the lines that live in your head rent-free? I mean, they're all famous now, right? Like, draw me like oh, one of your French girls. Yes. Uh, it's um, it's Shakespeare the way it's meant to be done. <laughs> I was doing, in my research, like, was trying to find some of the press coverage, not just the reviews of this film, but, like, the interviews with the actors. And I, I rediscovered an Oprah interview that I remember watching at the time where, like, it was Oprah's Titanic special. Do you remember it caused oh. kind of an upset? Like Oprah loves the line, put your hands on me, Jack, is what made me think of this. And she like quotes it in a very sultry voice. But that Oprah Titanic special was the interview where Billy Zane like shows up with a baby doll and then tosses the baby doll to the crowd. And like, I remember this being like a mild controversy at the time. Like Billy Zane was clearly just trying huh. to like lean into his role as the villain of the film. Right. And it never really took him anywhere, pretty much. No. <laughs> Uh, Billy Zane. I mean, he has fantastic lines. I mean, it's true. So I would say Leonardo's artistry in this film is fairly reduced compared to what we've been discussing. Yes, but he's just highly professional. He's he's exactly aware of who he is and what kind of movie. Yes, and as is Billy Zane. Yes, yes. He's just like, you've got some scenery for me to chew and some <laughs> absurd lines to be delivered. I will yank a six-year-old oh, into the be. lifeboat uh, to like get out of here. I do right? love the detail that they had to load up Kate Winslet's tongue with KY jelly for when she spits at him and so Billy Zane just which apparently to took like hundreds of takes to stand or there with like KY yeah. all over his face over and over again it's a funny thing to imagine that's the difference between this and Romeo and Juliet that like it's very clear that everyone knew what kind of movie they were showing up for and what kind of paycheck they were signing up for sure yeah but also just like no one tries to kind of reinvent the wheel reinvent the wheel right yeah and- yeah reinvent the ocean liner this is where in Romeo and Juliet I feel like some people are like um it's like you're in a different movie my friend yes yes that's a really good point there are different performances in Romeo and Juliet that feel like they're in different movies that's exactly right like Pete Postle's weight is still hanging out in in the name of the father oh bless him he totally is yes absolutely yeah I mean I think you landed on something that's really notable to me too which is this is one of Leo's worst roles Titanic it's a terrible character there is no 
character. His entire character is that he's poor. Like, that's really all we know about him is he's a poor... He's Manic Pixie Dream Boy, right? He is Manic Pixie fucking Dream Boy. He totally is. He's a poor artist drifter who is there to show the rich character her destiny and conveniently die so he can't participate in it. He is totally, totally magical. Mm -hmm. I remember being really incensed that Leo didn't get nominated for an Oscar, you know, in my authoritative 15-year-old view of things. But, like, I can't even fault his performance because the writing of the role just gives him nothing, you know? And in that sense, maybe that's why I like the movie or why it stood out to me when I was a teenage girl is, like, it does privilege the female story and, like, the complexity of the female character over any development of the male character. And Rose DeWitt Bucator is clearly given sort of wants and motivations and complexities that Jack Dawson is simply not given. But it also, I think, stands to inform why Leonardo DiCaprio will not do another romantic role at all until right. he reunites with Kate Winslet in Revolutionary Road, which can barely be called a romantic That's movie. That's not a romantic movie, my yeah. God. I mean, he is technically part of a heterosexual couple in that movie, but it is not about <sighs> how well that turns out. Yeah, A movie in which Kate Winslet and Leo do have much more trouble with birth control, famously. Yes, indeed, yes. Spoiler alert. It's treated with much more candor than in Titanic. One of the things I find most interesting about this career period is like how you see after What's Eating Gilbert Grape, Basketball Diaries, and The Failure of Don's Plum, how much Leo needed like straight romantic leads to take his career to the next level but then I think his career completely exceeded any expectations of what that next level was going to be and so he spends mm-hmm. the next 10 years running screaming from like romantic intimations of any kind on screen right right and really never never captures that kind of heartthrob moment again he he st- right. says a lot of times that he is not interested in doing that again and he doesn't want to be worshipped by hordes of teenage girls and he just wants to be like a De Niro figure who's like a serious actor with longevity he just wants to date them apparently but yeah this is also what interests me in terms of Leo vis-a-vis gender and sexuality is like exactly the demographic that brings him to the career prominence that he needs and desires in order to be the movie star he he wants to be, in other words, teenage girls, is exactly the demographic he throws under the bus as soon as he has enough career latitude to have more choices. Right. Right. And I think that that's archetypal. You know, like, I think that's very common. I'm thinking also of, like, Jonathan Franzen on Oprah when he was like, well, I don't want these Oprah's book club readers. I don't remember what exactly right. the, the, the scripting of the controversy was, but it was very much the same, like, well, this demographic that's brought me all of my wealth and fame, I have no interest in them. That's not serious, you know? I think that's interesting. I don't like it one bit. I'll say it on the record. I don't like it. Defend yourself, Leo. (laughs) What do you have to say for yourself, Leo? Yes. I mean, and it's interesting, right? The movie that, like, I'm sure none of our listeners are going to remember this one, but I feel like the movie that sort of, I think, did well after Titanic, and I think one that actually ended up knocking Titanic off the number one spot of the box office in the United States after like months where it just kind of hung out there and people were just so rewatching it constantly. So yeah. many months of theatrical release, yeah. Is The Man with the Iron Mask. Really? I believe so. Uh, double check me on this, but I believe so. Or at least close to. Maybe there's one like one weekend without Leo and it was a moment of national mourning or something. But, you know, that's another interesting because it's like it's a heartthrobby kind of performance and role. Mm-hmm. But it's one where he doesn't, I believe, get a romantic plot. No, um, that is none. To say Much to my disappointment, yes. 
at that time. And you were correct about the box office too. And he's in it twice. He gets to act a lot. Mm -hmm. He gets to explore the whole narcissism angle Mm -hmm. again, but he does not have to have a love interest, which again is interesting, right? That's another story about middle-aged men with a kid, right? It's actually... I wonder if that was filmed before Titanic. It's an interesting question. It's a good question. I'm looking it up now. I don't believe it was filmed before Titanic. Man the Iron Mask for those who didn't grow up reading, you know, 19th century historical fiction. Um, <laughs> it, it's, a, it's basically a sequel to The Three Musketeers, right? And The Three Musketeers, yeah. well, plus D'Artagnan, are essentially in middle age at this point, have children themselves. And the man in the Iron Mask sort of forces them back into the fray and in ways that feel like they're about, you know, they're about their aging process, not about his life. Mm-hmm. Fun fact, DiCaprio won a Golden Raspberry Award for Worst Screen Couple for Man in the Iron Mask for his interactions. With himself. With himself, yeah. But I think that that... Seems fair. (laughs) Well, I think it's kind of indicative of the audience retribution that I felt, you know, is like the Golden Raspberry Award, I don't know that much about like how that award is chosen or who the selection committee is... But I think that could be interpreted as like the very powerful teen girl demographic of moviegoers being like, fuck you, DiCaprio. You're not giving us what we want at all. You know, like who wants to... I think it's the opposite. I think it's... Oh, controversy. How so? I think it's people dogging on him because they associate him with a teen heartthrob. Oh, yep. Could be. Because if you look at the Golden Raspberry nominations, especially in these kind of jokey categories, like worst on-screen couple, it is frequently about like things that young people like and usually young women like for reasons that you know the rest of us might find a little unfathomable right like sure i would be shocked if bella and edward were not on there at some point <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they were yeah totally should we do a, a twilight one at some point i have never seen twilight so that would be hard for me I do have some opinions about it. I've seen about an hour of it on an airplane flight, and I have to tell you, it was mm-hmm. it was a horrible experience. It's an awful. These films are awful, and yet, in a supreme joke, I think it turns out that the actors who were stuck in those roles are terrific. They are so good. Like Kristen Stewart is great in everything, but so oh, is yeah. he. I... Oh, they're really good. Yeah. I'm a huge Case 2 fan. Yeah. He took a little longer finding his sea legs, I think, but he's also fantastic. Um, uh, whatever his name is. Mm. Uh, Robert, Robert Pattinson. Pattinson. I feel like there's a dialogue there between that and Kate Winslet and, and Leo in Titanic, right? Like, But like people who are like, oh, fuck. I like oopsed into this like ridiculous teen culture juggernaut but i kind of want to just do i don't want to do these kinds of roles yeah i do think that kristen stewart and robert pattinson's entrapment by those roles was very similar to that experienced by the actors in titanic except that of course one should say that twilight is like infinitely worse than titanic well yes yeah i mean i like i said i haven't seen it so i can't speak to the film i think i read the first book back in the day but i can't remember anything about it i was never a big fan of the vampire trend and like Mm. what that felt whatever you and my 90s were very different (laughs) well i think it's interesting how these conversations have revealed that about dicaprio specifically like with romeo and juliet i am still incapable of watching that i'm not in 
incapable of watching the film critically, but I'm still much more inclined towards a sort of uncritical adoration of the film than I am towards like deconstructing who's best at Shakespeare in it. But I think so much of this is framed by nostalgia and like interests and where you were in your journey at the time a specific thing was released and how much you like sci-fi, <laughs> which you do. And I, it's not really my thing. I guess I tend to think that looking for queerness in vampire stories is a lot easier than it is to look for it in, in historical romances, let's say, you know. Um... <laughs> There's definitely a case to be made there. Yes. <laughs> Fair enough. And for our listeners, we will be doing some queer readings of uh, vampire films coming up later in the season that you have to look forward to. Should we maybe go over some of what's in store this season? I mean, we've talked about DiCaprio, but now maybe we should leave behind the decapressants and talk about what other parts of the 90s we're thinking about. <laughs> the decapressants. You took the thought right out of my head. So as we mentioned in our last episode, the direct perspective part one, we decided to have some fun with our theme this season and kind of took a loose approach to asking our guests to either we will give them a movie or they will give us a movie of a chick flick that they love, usually from the 90s allowing the guests to define chick flicks however they will. So we have some discussions that are not about 90s films. We have some discussions that are not about films, but we have focused our season mostly on that. So we have some very exciting conversations coming up. We have Susan Stryker talking to us about a film that she proposed, The Triumph of Cinema, that is Miss Congeniality. We have Ingu Kang, who came in to discuss the Swedish teen film from 2013, We Are the Best, which is very much of a piece with these 90s movies, mm -hmm. even though it was not technically shot in the 90s. Highly right. recommend it. It's viewable for free on YouTube. And in general, we have tried to talk about films that are easy to access. We're going to be discussing the eternally wonderful Clueless uh. with... Nile, who, on top of being a super fan of that movie, was born the year it came out, which is crazy. So I still can't deal. So that's going to be an interesting intergenerational conversation. We're going to be talking with Merve Emre about Bram Stoker's Dracula, aka my favorite movie of all time. Dude, it occurred to me as I was watching Romeo and Juliet, I was like, I think that how I feel about Romeo and Juliet is how Adrian feels about Dracula. Like that kind of like deep down, ridiculous old favorite. Yeah, that's probably right. Perhaps. Anyway... Then, continuing an intergenerational theme, we have Terry Castle, our Stanford colleague, who is herself a um, expert on Patricia Highsmith. She is coming to talk to us about The Talented Mr. Ripley, oh. the gayest movie I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you're here for queer readings, you won't be disappointed. No, that, that movie just is a queer reading. Queer reading is literally just like, cue the video. Entirely. Entirely. And then we have my dear friend Mira Menon talking to us about another triumph of cinema, Now and Then, from 95, which Adrian had not seen I have not seen it. And I feel really privileged to be the one to bring it into his life. Thank you again. And I think that's everything that we have confirmed so far. That's right. Is that true? We have a lot of fun coming up for you. We have been watching movies like it is literally our job, because it is. There's a famous podcast superstar who still owes us a date to watch I can't wait. none other than Reversal of Fortune. But that's going to... We're still nailing down a few details for the back end of the season, but we have a lot of fun film watching coming up with all of you as we transition into this 
not quite post-pandemic, but maybe not being inside our houses by ourselves all the time kind of nether era. Yeah. Don't know what to call yeah. it yet. Should we do a live show where we just drink outside yes. and speak into microphones? Yes. yes. Yes, we should. Yeah, I think we yes. kind of have to. Yes, we should. Doesn't even need a theme. The theme can just be like Adrian and Laura do a live show drinking outside is the theme. I like it. Megan, our editor, is going to love it. It's going to be a really easy job for her. Yeah. Anyway, we are so glad that you have tuned in for our historic third season. <laughs> we hope you will continue listening with us, watching with us, and um, and thinking about things from 25 years ago in a podcast called The Feminist Present. Seems right to me. <laughs> We're using the gifts of feminism to figure out what happened in 1995. I mean, some of us are using the gifts of feminism in the present to still process things from 1995. So I think I think we can just take a long lens on, on contemporary history. Leo on the beach. Leo on the beach. Cast a long shadow. Part of you, Laura, has never has never left that beach i am still on that goddamn beach trying to figure out my own sexuality and i have not figured it out as of the end of this conversation so come back next week and see what else we have in store for you thanks for joining us the feminist present is co-hosted by adrian dobb and laura good it's produced by laura good and edited by megan kalfas all of our original music is by julie herndon we are eternally grateful for funding support from the institute named for a woman in a building named for a woman the michelle r clayman institute for gender research at stanford university where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues cynthia newberry allison dahl crossley natalie p mason jennifer portillo wendy skidmore shivani Meta, Carolyn Asante Darty, and Morgan Kanan. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by the Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences.